Well, it's still a good morning. Been uh, good to be with everybody so far. Thankful to have some visitors and thankful to have some that are maybe back from holidays. Uh, not to say that there, well, there was a specific holiday that everyone was celebrating, but maybe there were some that were. And I know that we have some people here because there are a lot of things that have been going on in Atlanta uh, over the last weekend. And just very grateful that we have people that are here. And um, we hope that we can get to know you a little bit better. And um, I know that we've had at least several people that have been traveling. And it's good to see some people that are back and able to be with us again. What I want to do today is I want to take a look at, depending on how time goes, four or five instances of people asking Jesus a question where he responds with a question itself. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't answer their question, but I think it's a tactic that Jesus uses to draw out the issue behind their question, um, or really to draw out the actual question they should be asking sometimes. So our, it's the last Sunday of the month, and our theme this year is Jesus Christ, Our Foundation. That's what we've been focusing on since September and we have a learning goal and a living goal. This is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so our learning goal is that we want to learn more about Jesus Christ and how to be built on him as the foundation of our faith, our lives, our church, family, whatever. You know, whatever falls into those big categories. We want to see how is Jesus our foundation in those ways and learn more of Jesus so we can establish him as our foundation. Then we want to live that out. And the way we want to live that out is also taken from 1 Corinthians 3, where we want to be better built on Christ as a church, but be, be built on Christ better as individuals so that we can make sure we are God's field, God's building, and that we are a dwelling place for God. It's a beautiful thought, but how do we do that? And that's what we, we're talking about. And I think that taking a look at some conversa conversations that Jesus has with people, where they really approach him with questions, whether they're trying to trap him or it seems like a very innocent and genuine question, um, we'll, we'll notice that there are differences in how people approach Jesus. But they approach him with a question. And in answering them, Jesus asked them a question back. I think that will help us because, number one, we all should approach God and approach the gospel and approach Christ in a way where we seek to have uh, real questions answered. Genuinely we are not trying to test God or test the gospel in a way that we want to disprove something or to more prove ourselves, but we want to know more. But also, Jesus, in answering these people's questions, I really believe that he helps establish a foundation for them that we can learn from that will be our foundation as well. So, Basically, what I want to do is I want to see how Jesus helps establish a foundation himself through these conversations. The first one we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. So I'll, I'll be totally honest with you about why I thought of looking at these different things. And we're only going to go for, through four or five. I wrote down ten. Uh, not on here, but I wrote down ten originally. I think that there are more than that. There are many times when people ask Jesus a question. And there are many times Jesus asks other people questions. But I wrote down that there are at least 10 times different instances where people ask Jesus a question and he responds with a question. I thought of, of this idea because uh, when I was on my trip over in Africa, I really just, we, we were getting a lot of questions. And some of those questions, I, were, I was pretty sure that they were trying to test us, which I was like, that's okay. They don't know us. We're from a foreign place. They get people come over here all the time 
from different places and, and they need to test like where they're coming from. They need to test their doctrine, that, that what, what's behind the things that they're saying so they can trust what they're saying, right? But then I started thinking, there's a danger that we can actually approach God in a similar way and that can be inappropriate at times. So I thought, well, let me just start looking at some times where people ask Jesus a question. And then through just kind of diving into it more, I realized there's some really good truth that Jesus brings out that maybe isn't part of their question, but has to do with their question and should be part of their question, but it wasn't. Um, one of those examples would be what Tim read for us in Matthew 19. We're not going to look at that one, but in that one, you have someone in that instance, you have someone saying, good teacher, what should I do? What good things should I do to inherit eternal life? Which is actually similar to another time where someone asks a question, I believe it's in Luke, where then you have the Good Samaritan example that is brought out. But in Matthew 19, Jesus, is, his response to that question is, well, what is good? Like, why, why did you use that word, basically? Do you know what's good? Well, only God's good. And so it's kind of a weird way of answering the question that actually gets to the heart of what the question should be. The question should not be, what can I do to inherit eternal life? The, the question really should be, who is good so that I can know how to be more patterned after what is good. God is good. He establishes what is good. So now it's not about what I should do, but it's rather about like, who is God and how can I be more like God? So Jesus doesn't get into all of that necessarily, but I think that's how he answers that question. That's just one quick example of, of how my mind works when we were looking at this. So maybe that's helpful. Maybe that's really confusing. But we're going to look at 4 or 5 this morning. So Matthew 9 is going to be the first one we look at. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 14. When the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and old wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Well, what kind of answer is this to the question about why do the disciples of John fast? Why do the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. In the other two instances where uh, of, of, of the other two accounts of this conversation, <laughs> It doesn't specifically say that it was the disciples of John that asked this question, but in Matthew's account it does, which is a very interesting thing because I would assume this is a very genuine question. It's not the Pharisees trying to trap him, and I don't really know if we have a time of John's disciples trying to trap Jesus. We have a time where John the Baptist sends his own disciples out to Jesus to test him in a way to say, are you the one we're looking for? That's different than how the Pharisees most often ask questions. I think this is a genuine question. Why do we fast? Why do these other religious people fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now, I don't know if, if what they're saying or what, what an implication of that is, is that um, Jesus' disciples never fasted at all privately. I think what they're, what they're really asking about is, why is there not an understanding and part of your teaching that they should fast? Like that was not a highlight of Jesus' teaching up to this point, it seems. Why is that? Well, Jesus responds to the question. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Well, I guess they could, right? So, but his, but his real question is, why would they? 
So you have a question. Why do others fast but your disciples don't? Jesus' question, should the wedding guests mourn when the bridegroom is there? <laughs> it's not a time of mourning. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of focus on the one that is there, not a focus on, on, on myself, not to say it's a self-righteous thing to fast, but a focus on myself and what I need to do to be more spiritual, right? It's a time to focus on the bridegroom when you're there for a wedding. It's not time for mourning. It's time for celebration. Instead of fasting, it's time for feasting. And I think what Jesus is really saying is that uh, right now it's not time for my disciples to fast because I'm still here. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of feasting. Not celebration isn't everything that Jesus did was a party. I'm not saying that at all. But rather what I'm saying is that there will come a time after Jesus where they will fast. Because there will be a time where they need to um, cast off the physical things in order to hone in on spiritual things. But right now, they have the spiritual thing in front of them, and it's Jesus Christ. So they need to sit and learn from him. They need to focus all their attention on him. They don't need to fast to focus on what's spiritual. They just need to learn from Jesus to focus on what is spiritual. So it says that in Luke 18 that sometimes the Pharisees even fasted twice a week. But it seems like that they took pride in that sort of righteousness. And it says that John's disciples fasted out of repentance and humility, which really fits how John presented himself. There was nothing wrong with the fasting. I don't think Jesus is trying to say that. He's just saying it's not time for the fasting. We actually know in Acts of times where the disciples did fast because they had to see who should they appoint, or not appoint, who should they pick out as the next, um, the next apostle to replace Judas. Well, there, is, there seems to be a time of fasting. Or we're going to go on a journey. Well, well where should we go? Or, or the big decisions that were going to be made. They, they fasted for those things. But right now, it's not time for that. Well, look at the two examples that Jesus uses to point that out. He says, you don't put a new cloth, a new fragment of a garment on an already old garment. Because if you do, it will tear away after the new piece shrinks. I, that's my understanding of how this would work. Um, when you, I, I, I don't think I've ever sewed in my life that I can think of. Um, but my, what I've seen my grandmother do, at least, is whenever I would get like a hole in the knee of my jeans, which happened a lot when I was a kid, and I never knew how it happened, but I just knew it happened. It's not like she made a huge piece to go over the hole. That would just look kind of weird. You kind of get a piece that's going to fit the hole. That just makes sense. But if it's a new cloth that's put on something that's old, that's already shrunk, that's already worn, what's going to happen when that new is actually shrunk? It tears away from the hole, and now a bigger hole is there. Well, you don't want that. Uh, now, now what you've done is you've actually ruined even more the thing that you were trying to fix. And then the other example with this old wineskins, my understanding is that you put new wine in new wineskins, and then the wineskins expand from the wine, right? But if you have old wineskins, they've already expanded. And they've already kind of gone through that process. To put new wine in it again, you're, you're, you're trying to really test the limits to see if it's going to expand even more. And it will burst. It's like a balloon that you've already blown up. And then your, your mom or your dad, uh, this just happened with me, I guess, when I was a kid. But I was like, I, it was just a competition for me. So I would blow it up as hard as I could, you know, get red in the face, everything. And then I'm like, I look around at everybody else's, it's like, well, I want mine to be a little bit bigger, you know. 
But then there, there's a parent there that was like, I think it's good. Don't worry about it. It's like, oh, let, let me see what I can do here. Well, it always would bust. And then I would be shocked and then I don't have a balloon anymore, right? Well, why would I even do that? It didn't make sense. And I think that's what he's saying. You don't do these things. You know you don't put new wine in old wineskins. The old wineskins will bust. And now the thing that you had, even if it was a little bit misshaped, even if it was a little bit worn, even if it was, had a hole in it, well, now it's good for nothing. You've ruined the thing that you had. And I think what he's saying is that if his disciples didn't focus on him, they're ruining their opportunity and their time with him. It's not time to fast, he's saying. Well, what lesson can we learn from this? I think there's a couple lessons. The first thing is that Jesus is first. He is preeminent. He is the beginning. And he deserves all of our focus. That's not to say that disciples of Jesus today should not fast. I also don't see a strong uh, teaching from Jesus commanding his disciples to fast. I see examples of disciples fasting. So there's no problem with Christians that fast at times. And there, there's no problem with Christians fasting from various things, from um, withholding themselves from certain physical pleasures, whether it be food, TV, whatever it might be, in order to focus more on spiritual things. That is not a problem. The lesson that I think we should gain from this, though, is that Jesus wants all of these people to know that he is first, that he is preeminent, and that what we need to do, even today, is we need to sit and learn from Jesus, that we need to have all of our focus and attention on him. What that means is that we don't let other religious groups or people determine what's right. We let Jesus establish what's right. It doesn't matter what the disciples of John did. It doesn't matter what the Pharisees did. As righteous or self-righteous, as you might be, genuinely righteous or self-righteous. doesn't matter. Jesus establishes what is right. We start with him. The next thing is that we don't bring our past or even our present ideas of religion or Christianity to the table first. We first see what Jesus says. We first see what the gospel teaches. And then we, and then we can see how some of our things and our beliefs and our tendencies even, they need to be kind of weeded out through that process of seeing what does Jesus teach? Let's sit and learn from him first and foremost. So Jesus establishes the beginning and what we are to do or what we should not do. The second thing I think we can learn from this is that he deserves all of our attention so we can learn of him and follow him. And I think that's what he's wanting these people to know. Many of these people will become his disciples. Many of these people will not, though. And I think the reason is because as we see the teaching of Jesus progress, there becomes some times where as they sit and learn of him, they don't like some things that they hear. So what will we do when that happens? If the more we put attention on Jesus, the more we put attention on God's word, what happens when we don't like what we see or hear? And I don't mean we hear other people's opinions and we don't like that. That's a given. I mean we hear God's truth. What happens? Well, what we have to do is we have to realize that it's time for us to cast off the presupposition, cast off the former ideologies we had, and we just start with Jesus. And that's how we get to the point where we can um, make sure that we are growing, make sure that we have started with Jesus as our foundation and we continue to build on him as the foundation, like our theme has said. Let's go to the next one in Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12. Now this is one that I think is meant to trap Jesus, but it could be some genuine people that are interested in this question. So Matthew 12, beginning in verse 9. 
So Jesus goes from there and enters the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So we know that the people asked this are not doing this genuinely. But maybe there are people around there like, well, what's he going to say? Like, this is interesting. I want to know. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Here's an interesting thing just to note. When you see people accuse Jesus later on, they don't really refer to him breaking this kind of stuff. They don't refer to him doing inappropriate things like this, like they were hoping to catch him in. Isn't that interesting? So maybe maybe like a side point from that. I think this might show that Jesus did not break the Sabbath. Um, I know some people that I believe are my brothers and sisters that would say that, well, Jesus did break the Sabbath, but he's Lord of the Sabbath. And so it's okay, like the beginning of Matthew 12 actually says. I actually don't think so. I think that what we learn is Jesus is trying to uh, go back and actually establish what was the truth of the teaching? What was the actual commandment of the Sabbath? So you start there. But then that's not even what he gets to right here. What he, he kind of alludes to that. Because there actually was some teaching on the Sabbath about if your animal is whatever, your neighbor's animal is hurt and all that stuff. But actually, he's going to the value of a man versus an animal, which is a very interesting way of getting to the heart of the issue. These people, these Pharisees, these uh, religious people, I'm assuming this was a, a Pharisee uh, that might have asked this, uh, they, they were not actually wanting to see what does the law say. They were wanting to trap him and accuse him. And Jesus is saying, well, your problem isn't just that you aren't remembering what the law actually says. Your problem is that you would value your own animal over another man or woman. So the value of human life is what's brought up here. So the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus question back, who wouldn't lift their sheep out of a pit if it fell into it on the Sabbath? Like, everybody does that. Not just like everybody does that and everybody knows they're breaking the Sabbath. Everybody does that and knows they're still keeping the Sabbath. So why would you think it's lawful to actually heal on the Sabbath? So Jesus is challenging their tradition and their teaching. And he's wanting them to compare it to the law. He points to their tradition as being inconsistent based on defining what is good and who should be helped. If you're helping yourself, it's good. If you're helping somebody else, maybe it's not so good. And he's pointing that out, that that's inconsistent. You would help your own animal, but you wouldn't help another person? And you would, you would claim that helping another person... Well, that's work, so I can't do that. But me getting my sheep out, well, that's not work. That's just what, that's what you're supposed to do. You see the problem with that? Their thinking was flawed, and their tradition was flawed, and their value of, uh, the way that they valued people was even flawed. Because really his question is, isn't a man more valuable than sheep? So here's, here's, I think, an application for us from this. We should see God's commandment and what he has actually revealed. We don't seek what others say. We don't seek what we assume we already know. We seek God's commandment first and what he has revealed. And then we are to be consistent and apply it the way that it is meant. And not apply it the way that is just convenient for me, even if it means it's inconvenient for you. We keep God's commandment. And we keep them not because they benefit us, but actually we keep them in spite that it might actually cost us something. 
It also means that we do what we can so that others do not lose something. I think that's another lesson we learned from this. So what Jesus is trying to help them understand is God's commandment is first. Know that, keep that, but also understand that it's not, you're not keeping that so that it benefits you. You're just keeping it because it needs to be kept. And in doing so, it might actually cost you something. Let's go to a third one in Matthew 15. Matthew chapter 15. This is after Jesus has fed 5,000. He's walked on water. I mean, so many people seem to really be understanding who Jesus is and, and they're drawing closer to him. Some other people are afraid and they're, they're, uh, they seem to be kind of running away at times. But in Matthew 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father and mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, or Corbin. He need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We should never confuse tradition or ways of keeping God's commandments for the commandment itself. So their question, why do Jesus' disciples not follow traditions like others? His question back, why do you break God's commandment for your tradition? I don't think they were expecting that response. (laughs) And actually, he doesn't really answer their question about washing the hands. He just goes right to the tradition. By the way, they're the ones that brought it up, so it's their fault. They're the ones that said, why do they not keep the tradition of the elders? What they should have done is they should have said, why do they break the commandment of God? But they couldn't say that because that's not what they were doing. So it's their own fault. They, they kind of put themselves in a hole there. And Jesus, as wise as he is, understands their actual problem. Is they're, they're not concerned with keeping the commandment. They're concerned with keeping the tradition, even if it means breaking a commandment. But they could justify it because they go, well, I have the right to do this. And actually, this is a good thing because I know that I'm supposed to honor my father and mother. And I know that I should take care of them. And I know that I should be there for them. And who knows if it was really uh, um, an insidious way that they were going about it, but that's how it played out. Because that what they were saying is, all right, well, I'll tell them early on not to expect anything from me. And that's just given to God. That way, hey, you can't come asking me for anything anymore. I, I have no responsibility towards you. Well, that just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> So what we're going to do is we're going to not keep God's commandment because I told you it's given to God, and that's a good thing. Well, it's, it's really hard to argue with people that, that phrase things that way, um, unless you're Jesus. <laughs> and unless you know that what you can say is, oh, yeah, you're breaking the commandment of God right there, but just by doing that. So here are some things that I think we need to understand from this. If a way of applying God's teaching and making sure we keep the commandments it helps us. We should never confuse that for the commandment itself. We can't make something that is not God's law seem like it is. And we also can't approach God's word seeking how we can be benefited 
kind of goes back with the last one. So here's an application. When we seek to do what God has said, there, there are times we construct our lives in a way that help us do that. We can't hold that up as equal to God's law or expect others to keep it the same way we do. We can't expect people to keep God's law. People that say they're Christians, we can say, this is what God's word says. I'm trying to do that. You should try to do that. That's totally fine. But to construct our lives in a way to say, this is how I will accomplish something that God has told me to do. And then to say, why aren't you doing things the same way I do them? I'll give you a quick example. So if I, if I understand, I should be meditating on God's word. I should be studying God's word. I should be filled with his word. So every morning I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. and I'm going to study God's word for two hours. I'm going to take a 30-minute nap. And then I'm going to get up and actually get ready for the day. And then I hear that Kelly's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, well, you're not keeping God's word. You don't love God the way you should. You don't, you're not meditating. on. You see how, what I'm saying? Like, that was a way that I'm, I'm not doing that, but I don't get up before I for that. Um, uh, it doesn't even sound appealing to me, actually. Uh, I would rather, there's a lot of other ways that I would rather go about studying God's word than, than doing that. But if that was the way that suited me and helped me accomplish what I believe God wants me to do, that's fine. But I cannot then say, you should do the same. And if you don't, you're not actually keeping God's commandment. That's what they were doing. There was nothing wrong with eating without washing your hands. We think that's kind of dirty and gross in our culture. For them, maybe they didn't think the same way. But that, it's not about washing your hands as a ritual necessarily. It's what was behind it was, you know what, as you go about your day, you probably have touched something unclean. So to make sure you don't eat with unclean hands, you better wash before you eat. Well, what if I stayed inside all day and didn't touch anything unclean? It didn't matter to the Pharisees. You wash your hands before you eat because most likely you touch something unclean. But if I didn't, I can still eat and I have not broken God's commandment. It doesn't matter. You do it anyways because what if you did? Or chances are you did. And they were saying that was God's commandment. But it wasn't. Here's another example that I think could be very real for some of us. Let's say there's a woman that has an addiction. She's not a Christian. She goes to the same place, same store, whatever, every day or maybe every couple of days to get what she needs. And I don't want to be specific with what that might be because it might apply to some of us, but also because I want to keep it very general. One day she becomes a Christian and she gets herself clean. It's a wonderful thing. But she determines that she should avoid that area or that store to remove temptation and to help her be faithful to God. It's not just because of the painful memories. It's just like to keep herself clean. She's not going to go to that area anymore. She's not going to go to that store anymore. Maybe it's, she's not going to be around those people anymore. Whatever it might be, she's going to do that. That is good for her. She should do that. Can she accuse others of sinning if they go there though? No, she can't. Would it be right to assume they have sinned since she associates sin with that place? No, that would be wrong. Now, what I'm not saying is she used to go to a club every night and that's where you know she was doing her thing and she sees someone coming out of that same club where there's only one thing that goes on in there and she said, I can't assume they were sinning. Look, I mean, <laughs> if there's one thing that goes on in that place and you see someone coming out of there, it is fair to at least ask, what were you doing in there? Like that doesn't seem like an appropriate place. But if it's a convenience store or if it's a certain area of town, it's like, well, we all know what probably goes on there. So you must have been partaking of that. We can't do that. 
We cannot assume that. We can't hold people to a certain standard that we set that we understand benefits ourselves and keeps ourselves from temptation. We can't do that for other people all the time. Now, we can talk about things like that. We can give each other ideas of how we keep from temptation to help encourage each other. But I cannot hold you to a standard that I set for myself that I cannot find explicitly stated in God's word. When I do that, I'm holding up my tradition or my way of applying God's commandment up to the commandment itself. And we can't do that. We become pharisaical when we do that. Same chapter, Matthew 15. I want to go down just a little bit. And I want to read verses 32 through 38. I want, to, I want to learn from uh, this text that Jesus is sufficient and actually he's more than enough. So Jesus calls the disciples in verse 32 to him. And he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am willing and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. This one starts out different. It starts out with Jesus saying something and then now they have a question. The disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Basically, the question is, where are we going to get food on a mountain? Jesus says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. Magadan. Their question is, where can we get enough food when we're up here on the mountain? Jesus' response is, what do you have? Doesn't even address how desolate the place is. Doesn't address how many people are there. What do you have among you? Jesus takes what the disciples have and makes it sufficient for his purpose and for everyone around him. In fact, it's not just sufficient, it's more than enough. It's plenty and then some. He proves that he is enough and provides more than what was even needed or necessary. I think this is an interesting application for us to make. We can't be concerned with what other churches or people seem to have. They have more. And we just sit around and we're like, what am I supposed to do? Like, as an individual, I look around, I'm like, this person is more talented. This person has more money. This person has more opportunities. And why do I not have that? I want to have more. This is not enough. Or maybe as a church, we sit around and we say, why do we not have that? If we only had this, why do we not have this? These other places, they, they have more things. And I don't even mean denominations. I don't even mean um, churches that maybe they have more funds and, it, and they you know, go about having that or they go about obtaining that in ways that we would think inappropriate. I mean, I mean, groups that we would agree with that like they are sound and they are doing things the best they can in the right way. We cannot think that we need more to be successful, to be important or to be useful in God's kingdom. We use the resources we have and that's plenty because we have Jesus and he is enough. And the the things, the strengths, the uh, abilities we have through Christ are not only enough, they are more than enough. As a church, we have enough among ourselves with what God gives each of us and what he provides to fulfill his purpose for us. We have enough to reach people with the gospel because we have the gospel itself. We have enough to make an impact on people's lives because we have lives we can live out of faith. 
and we have a bond of love with each other, and we have unity. We do have other resources that we can help with uh, needs, but we need to understand that Jesus is enough, and in fact, he's more than enough. So the comparing ourselves to other people, other groups, the comparing ourselves with um, the good times, and now we're in a bad time, like we were in a time of plenty, now we're in a desolate place kind of thing, we just can't think that way. Jesus proves to these disciples that he is enough and that they should just have more faith in him. Um, and they should bring the things that they have to him and just wait and see what he can do with it. And I think that's the way we're supposed to approach Jesus as well. That's the way we're supposed to approach our faith, our life. That's the way we're supposed to approach things as a church as well. I want to go to the last one, and it's, it's in Matthew as well. It's in Matthew 22. All of these examples that I've been using are in Matthew, but that's not all the examples there are. There are some in Mark, Luke, and John as well. But I thought it'd be easy just to kind of walk through Matthew with these. So the last one is in Matthew chapter 22. I want to begin in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So flattering. Tell us then what you think. What you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So their question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? What a tricky question. (laughs) Um, It would be very easy for Jesus to feel super patriotic right now, and to say, No! (laughs) It is... It, we, we should be devoted to God, and we should be focused on, like, we, we are not Caesars, we are gods. And it would also be very easy, because of the Roman rule, to say, uh, yeah, you better. Because, so he could do either one. And he kind of does both. <laughs> but he responds with, with two questions. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, why do you test me? He just gets right to, to their problem. Like, their question isn't even a valid question because they're testing him. And we need to be careful that that's not true for us as well. That we don't test people and we don't test God in this way. But then the second question does get to their actual question. Whose likeness is on this coin? Like, whose face is that on it? It would be the same as if I had a quarter and I, and, and I was like, whose face is that? Or I held up a dollar bill and I said, whose face is that? That's the same thing that they're looking at. And they just say, well, Caesar's. Okay, well, yeah, so give it back to Caesar then. (laughs) Sounds so simple. And I can only imagine that as he said this, that the disciples are sitting there and they're just thinking, I don't know. I mean, is it that easy? And this might be another example of where they just wanted to say, Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) Because this would just be very difficult. It's a hard pill to swallow, what Jesus says here. Because really, I think what he is pointing out is that they should not be so concerned with giving up or giving back something that is not really yours. It's not your face on it. 
You remember when you were a kid, or maybe maybe this happened even when you were an adult, and that would be hilarious if it did, where you said, hey, that's my seat. And then someone's like, is your name on it? <laughs> and, it and I always wanted to be able to say, yeah, it is. Flip it over. There it is, you know? But it never was. And I'd just be like, come on, you know it's mine, though. Oh, was it? No, it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine. I mean, at all. You, you go to try to return something, and you say, hey, I'm trying to give this back. It's not mine. It's yours now. And they're like, oh, well, uh, your name's on it, so it's yours. Like, so sometimes we get rejected, and we don't like that because we – I want to give this back, you know. Well, no, it's it's actually yours now. Uh, you see that receipt right there? Yeah, it says after 30 days, that's yours. This is the 31st day. It's yours now. Maybe you get a nice cashier that says, I'll see what I can do. But look, that's got your name written on it now. And we don't like it that time. But other times, we want something to be ours. Most of the time, actually, we want something to be ours. And our face isn't on it. Our name's not on it. Somebody else's is. It's not ours anyway. We need to look at the originator of the thing that we have. We need to notice whose image or name is all over what we have. We need to be careful with how, how we view the things we have, quote unquote, earned. We should never approach the gospel or God the way this, these people do. Where we try to figure out how we can gain or keep all we want and still be justified and think we're going to please God that way. That's not how it works. And here's two applications for us, I think. There may be a little bit different. There's a little bit different spin on it. You go back to Genesis 1. Whose image are we made in? We're made in the image of God. We have his likeness in us, on us. And I don't mean that necessarily in every way. I think in some very specific and unique ways, compared to all other creation, we have God's image implanted in us. I don't mean, when I say, if I say honest, you're going to think that I'm saying that, you know, we look exactly like God looks exactly like us physically. I just mean like something about us having the ability to choose, us having dominion, us having power, us, all of those things. Us having the ability to be holy like God. We, we have God's image and the capability to be in his likeness within us. So we should keep that. We should understand that that we are made in his image and we seek to continue that. But what that also means is everything that we do and everything that we have, everything we can accomplish, everything we can do with the holiness he's given us, with the dominion he's given us, with the ability to think and decide, that that should be devoted to God. We render to God the things that are God's. His likeness is in us. But the second way that I think we should think about this is as Christians, we're made in the image of Christ. So we are all intended to be given back to him. It gives, new, it gives different depth to Romans 12 where it says we're living sacrifices. Because it just makes sense when you think of it that way. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in Jesus' likeness. We are made new in Christ. We are his. He is ours, but we are his. We are devoted to him. So being a living sacrifice just kind of makes sense. That doesn't mean, mean it's easy because we still feel like we want to be ours. We, want to have, we, we feel like we accomplish things instead of thinking, well, actually, it's Christ that accomplishes things. So all we are and all we have is given to Christ. We are his likeness. So with, so with Jesus' answer to the original question, it is fitting for us to give ourselves totally to Christ because his likeness is who we're made in. It's not our own. It's not our mom or our dad. It's not our grandparents. It's not our preachers or anything like that. So everything is to be given back to the Lord. So just to wrap up, 
I guess my question would be for us, have we done that? Have you done that? Have you, have you given yourself over totally to Christ? If not, then I think it's fair to ask the question, are you in his likeness then? And if you're seeking to be in his likeness and you need help with that, we want to help you. Whether that's through prayers, or if you've never actually become in his likeness by being by repenting and, and by casting off sin and casting off the way of the world and be baptized into Christ and putting him on, well, you need to do that as well. But for those of us that are Christians that are just seeking to grow, be more built on Christ, I hope that this exercise of just looking at these five examples helps us to think about some things a little deeper. Helps us to see how Jesus approaches real questions and sometimes real questions that had a kind of devious motive behind it, but how he approaches that to get to the heart of the issue, to get to the foundation, so that we can, he can be established as the foundation, so God's truth can be established as the foundation, and then, be, and then everything else is built on that. That's what we need to seek to do, even if that's hard, even if it means we have to feel like we've got to start over. It's actually interesting in Luke's account of when Jesus brings up the, the man that builds on sand and the man that builds on the rock. In Luke's account, he says the man that built on rock dug deep. Sometimes we have to dig deep, which means it's very hard and it's painful. But when we do that, we're establishing a good foundation. Because the man that built his house on the sand, it actually said that there was no foundation at all. We need to understand that if we don't do that and establish Christ as our foundation and his principles as the basis of everything, we have no foundation. So let's start with Christ. Let's be built on him. And... And even if that means that we need help, even if that means it takes time and we need to study with each other, that's exactly what we should do. If you do need help and you, need, uh, you want us to pray with you, pray for you, uh, we will gladly do that. Um, we're going to sing a song that is meant as just a wrap-up of our worship service, but it's meant as an invitation for us to consider our spiritual lives right now. And if you need to respond to anything or you need something from this group, let us know as we stand and as we sing.